0: Well, I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together at one of our in-person worship gatherings at our various campuses. Many years ago, our family uh, was approaching the ticket booth of an amusement park. When a a complete stranger approached me and handed me six tickets to get into the place, a ticket for each of us, he said, "Sir." I heard you preach this past weekend, and I was so moved and so blessed. I just wanted to bless you and your family in return with these tickets. (laughs) No, uh, that's not what he said. This is what he actually said. He said, sir, I'd like you and your family to have these. And then he turned and walked away, never to be seen again. Now, if he had said, you know, I want to bless you, for blessing me you know i would have understood that i mean sometimes uh when you give uh you receive something in return but a complete stranger uh, giving me nearly two hundred dollars of free tickets for no reason left me thinking there had to be some kind of catch to this i mean were these tickets stolen or were they expired Well, upon examination, I found that they were totally legit. Then I wondered whether there was a camera somewhere in a bush recording our reaction for some lame television show. Well, after a few minutes, I finally allowed myself to believe that it was a legitimate gift, a a random act of kindness. And my cynicism turned to celebration. I mean, what a blessing. It was a gracious gift to an undeserving person. A nice person, mind you, but a person who did nothing to deserve that gift. Now, when something like this happens to us, isn't it true that we're immediately suspicious? Because we know in our society, life is predicated on performance, not grace. From the time that our children are young, We teach them, if you want something, you're going to have to earn it. We remind our children there is no such thing as a free lunch, that you get what you pay for. And if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so we just naturally keep score. We keep tabs on things. Someone does something for us we expect to pay them back. If we get a reward of some kind, it's probably because we worked hard to achieve it. That's how our culture works and also how most religions function. However, that is not how biblical biblical Christianity functions. For you see, Christianity is based on grace, God's grace. C.S. Lewis once said, What makes the Christian faith distinctly unique from other religions is grace. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law. Each of these requires one to earn the approval of God. Only Christianity makes God's love unconditional. Now here's the thing. Until you understand and understand grace and apply it to your life, you really won't know the God of the Bible or have a handle on what Christianity or the kingdom of God is all about. Now over the past 6 weeks or so, we've been looking at the parables that Jesus told in the Gospel of Matthew to help his disciples to understand what God's kingdom is like. Well, in Matthew 20, Jesus tells another parable to describe another aspect of his kingdom, a kingdom characterized by grace. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 and follow along as I retell the story. It's the story of a man who owned a large vineyard and likely took place during the grape harvest season in September in ancient Israel. The landowner had a vineyard full of grapes to be harvested. And so early one morning, he went to the town market where you could not only purchase an assortment of food products, but you could also hire laborers to work in your field. Now, when the landowner arrived at around 530, In the morning, he hired all the workers who were there looking for work. He asked them how much they would like to receive for a full day's work, which was 12 hours, by the way. And he agreed to pay them a denarius, which was the going rate of that day. The landowner said, you give me a full day's work and I'll give you a full day's pay. And so they left for the field and began working at six In the morning. A few hours later, the landowner went to the market again and he found some more workers gathered there. He hired them and he assured them that he would pay them whatever is right. And this scene is repeated at noon and at three o'clock in the afternoon as well. An hour or so before quitting time, he found a few dejected workers and hired them as well. All the workers were happy for the opportunity to work and to receive at least some pay for their efforts in order to buy food and other essentials. Now, Levitical law stated that you had to give a worker his pay at the end of every day. And so that is what the owner did. Only he did it in a highly unusual way. Instead of paying those who had worked the longest first, he instructed his foreman to begin paying those who had started work an hour before quitting time. And to everyone's shock, he paid them a full day's pay, a denarius, for one hour of work. While those who had worked three hours, six hours, nine hours. They also received a full day's wage, a denarius. And then he came to those who had worked the full ship, shift of 12 hours. Verse 10 says, so when, they, so when they, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them, also received a denarius when they received it they began to grumble against the landowner these who were hired last worked only one hour they said and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day but he answered one of them i am not being unfair to you friend didn't you agree to work for a denarius Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and thank you for your amazing grace. I ask that you would help us now to focus and to learn more about the nature of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts and you would give us the courage to respond to whatever you're asking of us. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this parable teaches us several things about generosity and the graciousness of our Lord, and also, therefore, what his kingdom is like. First of all, God's grace is a gift. Now, you probably noticed that Jesus' story makes no economic sense. Well, that was his intent. He was giving his listeners a parable about grace, which cannot be calculated like a day's wages. Grace is not about counting. It's not about finishing last or first. It's not about something we work to achieve. No, grace is a gift, period. Now to fully understand grace, we need to examine the relationship between justice mercy, and grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. For example, if you're pulled over for speeding, justice is you getting a speeding ticket. That's what you deserve. Mercy is forgiving you or not giving you that speeding ticket that you deserve. Now, as wonderful as mercy is, Grace is greater by far and is something really that only God would do. Grace is not only being forgiven of what you deserve, a speeding ticket, for example, but receiving more than you deserve. A $50 gift card to your favorite restaurant. And this was Jesus point in the parable here in Matthew 20. This parable is not about the workers. It is first and foremost about the owner and his character and his desires. The landowner in Jesus' parable, who obviously represents God, is a very gracious and generous man. From the beginning, he is as concerned with the welfare of the workers as he is with getting his harvest in on time. Notice he agrees to pay the first workers a fair wage for their hire, a denarius. The question is, why did the landowner pay those who worked less hours, and particularly those that worked only one hour or perhaps three hours, the same amount as he paid the all-day workers? Well, we don't know, of course. But remember, Jesus is describing what his kingdom is like. And that gives us a cue, a clue. And so I believe that he paid those who work less because he knew they needed to receive not part of a day's wage, but a full day's pay in order to care for themselves and also their families. See, these workers didn't have a savings account at the Royal Bank. If they didn't work today, chances were very high that they wouldn't eat today. In other words, they needed grace. The landowner chose to pay them according to their need, not according to their work. In short, he paid according to his grace, not wages. Now here's the thing. All the workers were grateful for what they were paid, except the workers who worked the entire 12-hour shift. Verse 10 tells us the reason. When they saw those who had worked only one hour receive the same pay they had agreed to work for, they expected to receive more pay from the owner. They were thinking, you know, That fellow over there got a denarius for working one measly hour. So I should be getting at least 12 denarius. Now, you know, that's how most people in our culture and most religions actually think. They figure, you know, if I go the extra mile or if I do lots of good things for God, then he'll love me and bless me more. And if I do less for God well then he'll love me and bless me less now make no mistake serving God and others is important and a sign that our faith in God is real but when we serve God in hopes that he now owes us something then we don't understand how his kingdom works in God's kingdom None of us get to heaven or receive wealth or even health or answers to prayer on our merit or on the basis of all the things that we've done for God. For none of us in ourselves comes even close to satisfying God's requirements. God loves us and He extends His grace to us not because of what we do for Him, but because of who. We are in him. You know, when each of our sons was born, he hadn't done a thing. And yet, I never imagined that I could love someone so much in such a short period of time. God's love for us is no different. We are loved and we're valuable to him simply because of who we are in him. His spiritual child created in his image. Of course, as his followers, we serve the Lord out of our love for him in the same way that a husband serves his wife out of his love for her. But it is misguided to think that our performance is going to earn us, um, uh, is, is going to earn us more of God's love and favor. No, all that we can do is accept his grace by faith and then live in his grace by faith. That's the first truth we see taught here in this parable. God's grace is a gift. The second truth this parable teaches us is that grace makes us equal to everyone else. Look at verse 12 those who had worked all day gave this complaint to the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now they grumbled because they thought of themselves as superior, as more deserving than those who had worked fewer hours. And therefore believed that the owner was actually treating them unfairly now i'll admit what the owner did and how he did it may have seemed unfair but the truth is the owner never shortchanged any of the workers he treated everyone fairly including those who worked the full 12-hour shift they got exactly the amount that they had agreed to work for they received what they deserved it's just that the other workers who worked less hours received more than they deserved you see the issue wasn't one of fairness the issue was envy in verse 15 the owner asked the all-day workers don't i have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Now, the word translated as envious envious, literally means evil eye. And so the owner was asking, are you giving me the evil eye because I'm being generous and because I'm good? The worker's envy blinded them to the landowner's goodness and generosity, instead of celebrating how generous the owner was with the other less deserving workers, the all day workers were only focused on themselves and were upset with the owner for not giving them more money. And yet what they were forgetting was if the owner had not been generous and invited them to work for him in the first place, they would still be looking for work. And have nothing to provide for themselves or their families. You see, they were no longer amazed by the owner's grace in their own lives. And this is one of Jesus' concerns here. That we continue to be amazed by God's grace. And not forget that we are saved not by our works, but by God's grace. And grace alone made available to us through our good and generous God in Christ. And you know, one of the ways that we can test ourselves to see how grateful we are for God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ is how we respond to those that we feel are less deserving of God's grace and generosity than we are. For example, how do you feel when you hear of a deathbed conversion of a mass murderer like Jeffrey Dahmer? Or let me bring it closer to home. How do you feel when you hear that the person who defrauded you, who hurt you, who totally messed up your life, has repented and embraced the grace and forgiveness of Christ? Do you find yourself upset with God's grace for letting this bad person off easy and thinking it's not genuine and refusing to give them the benefit of the doubt? Or how about this? Do you find yourselves getting upset over the fact that in your not-so-humble world and opinion, there are people who do not deserve what they get, like a promotion or a recognition of, of some other kind of success. All that to say, if you spend a lot of time comparing yourself and comparing your life with others, grumbling and complaining about it, it is quite possible you're losing sight of God's generosity and his amazing grace in your own life. I want you to notice that Jesus finished off this parable saying, in my kingdom, the last will be first and the first will be last. You know, our world says the first will be first and the last will be last because that's what they deserve. But Jesus says here in God's kingdom, no one is last And no one is first. We are all equal. We all cross the finish line together. We all win because our gracious God has leveled the playing field. And so when we make Jesus our Lord and we enter his kingdom, we no longer compare and compete with one another, but we actually cheer one another on to be all that God created us to be. In God's kingdom, you are not better than me, and I'm not better than you. We're all righteous only because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. None of us are worthy of his grace. When we get to heaven, there will be no contest to see who was the most deserving of God's grace. And so, as I said last time, the only thing that we can bring with us to heaven is our faith and our friendship with Jesus and those we've introduced to Jesus and his amazing grace. Now, to illustrate this further, think back with me to the time in Jesus' ministry when a group of smug religious leaders caught a woman in the act of adultery. You read about this particular incident in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. When they brought her to Jesus and accused her of adultery, you can be sure they didn't whisper. They humiliated her by making a public spectacle of her sin. Now, she knew that she was guilty. These peeping Toms had done their homework and undoubtedly caught her red-handed. And the Bible says they dragged her to the feet of Jesus and flung her down in the dirt in front of him, fully expecting him to throw the book at her. After all, she had broken one of the Ten Commandments and the judgment for adultery in that particular day was to stone her to death. And yet Jesus calmly squatted down and began writing something in the sand that many believe he wrote the names of various sins in the sand. And then he said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. In other words, he said, okay, let's perform some justice today. A full day's pay for a full day's work. An eye for an eye. Form a line. And let's have those of you who are sinless, you go ahead and stone her. Jesus said to them, if you're going to set yourselves up as spiritual representatives to administer divine judgment to give this woman what she deserves, then you must be without sin yourself. Well, we know, of course, that they weren't without sin because as Romans 3.23 says, we all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. You see, God's standard is perfection, sinlessness. Sinlessness. Even one sin in our lives means we fall short. Now, I could liken liken it to you and me walking to the edge of the Grand Canyon with a a mile distance from one side to the other. Now, I might be able to jump 50 feet while you might be able to jump 100. But we would both fall to our deaths. It's no different in the spiritual realm. You may have fewer sins than I do, but we both fall short of the glory or the perfection of God. And as we talked about last week, clearly the murderer, the child abuser, the terrorist, they fall short of God's standard. But make no mistake, so does the liar, the gossiper, and the slanderer. God says sin is sin, and when it comes to sin, Everyone faces the same fate. Everyone has a sin problem that needs to be paid for. While those who came wanting Jesus to cross-examine this woman, they dropped their stones and slowly left, realizing that they'd been cross-examined by him. Finally, there were only two people left in that makeshift courtroom this woman, and Jesus. And Jesus asks her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she replied. And then Jesus makes a statement, I hope rivets itself to all of our minds. He said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin jesus essentially said i know what you deserve you know what you deserve but because of my love for you i'm going to offer you a brand new start you matter to me and my grace is greater than your sin start over again woman the path that you were on is a dead-end street trust me and turn around walk with me in the direction that I am leading you and begin living the way that I want you to. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to free you and to save you. Can you imagine her response? I can just picture her cowering in the dirt, disbelief in her eyes and her looking up into his eyes and asking why? Why would you be gracious to me? I don't deserve this. And yet Jesus helps her up and gives her a brand new start because he loves to be outrageously gracious to the brokenhearted. Not to those who are proud and think that they're better and more deserving of God's grace, but those who are humble enough to acknowledge their sin and their need for help. You know, when we by faith accept the free gift of God's grace, we are forgiven. Our debt has been canceled. It's been wiped away, nailed to the cross of Christ. No longer do we have to keep striving to earn God's approval for we already have the approval of the Lord. Now, friends, I trust you see the implication of this truth in our lives. If God extends such amazing grace and forgiveness to you and to me, then how can we not forgive and extend grace to others who we may feel are undeserving? Think of someone who deeply hurt you or deeply wronged you to what extent are you continuing to keep them locked up in the prison of your own making if they were to come to Christ or come back to Christ and embrace his grace and his forgiveness if it were in your power to help them prosper enormously spiritually and relationally if it were in your power to see this person grow in humility and godliness and to be admired by everyone for the amazing transformation in their life, would you do it? Well, if you couldn't, or if you find yourself resisting doing it, then see it for what it is. See, like the all-day workers, you are looking at this person through the lens of fairness rather than through the lens of grace. And in so doing, you are not only revealing that you are taking God's grace in your own life for granted, but you're getting in the way of what God wants to do in the life of this person. Extending grace and forgiveness is such a painful process because it seems to be so unfair and we long to get even. We long to see justice and yet the alternative is even more painful. Philip Yancey says, the strongest argument in favor of forgiveness is the alternative, a world of ungrace. I mean, can you imagine living in a permanent state of unforgiveness? Francis Moriak, he tells a story of how a man spent the last few decades, decades of his marriage, sleeping down the hall from his wife. It was over some silly sexual miscue, which led each to conclude that they weren't wanted by the other. And so, every night, he waits for her to approach him, but she never does. Every night, she lies awake, waiting for him to approach her, and he never appears. Both are too proud and stubborn to break the cycle of ungrace. And soon, not just days and months, but actual years go by. Now, we may hear a story like that and think, you know, how silly, I mean, how foolish. And yet some of us are blind to the fact that there is unforgiveness in our heart toward someone else. I mean, let me ask you, if a person avoids speaking to a parent or to a child or a brother or sister for years or refuses to believe the best in them and what God can do in and through them, and refuses to see them and interact with them as if they had never hurt them in the first place, how can there be forgiveness and grace in their heart? If a person avoids speaking, take, it takes every opportunity um, to discredit or to speak negatively about a former boss, employee, or friend who hurt her, how can there be forgiveness in her heart. The reality is unforgiveness hurts us more than the other person. Not only can it lead to ill health, but like a demonic cancer, unforgiveness slowly eats away at our joy and our peace until the torment reaches unbearable proportions. I mean, Think about it. Could that explain verbal and physical abuse that goes on? Road rage and senseless attacks at work or at the hockey rink or on the street because there's unforgiveness in their heart. Well, I believe that is precisely the reason they are battling torturous thoughts and they won't find peace until they first embrace God's forgiveness themselves and then choose to forgive others. That's what life is like when we operate according to ungrace. Now, grace, on the other hand, breaks the cycle of revenge, does not necessarily settle all the questions of justice and fairness, but it does allow relationships to start over as uncomfortable and awkward It may be for a time. Forgiveness is not letting a person off the hook of justice. It is letting them off your hook. It's me taking off my judicial robe and saying, I will not judge you any longer or keep you imprisoned in the bitterness of my heart. I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. I'm releasing my desire to get even, to get a pound of flesh. I choose to see you and interact with you going forward as if you hadn't hurt me in the first place because God has given me the grace to start over. I give you the grace and the opportunity to start over as well. You know how beautiful that is. I mean, where would we all be if we couldn't start over? Which of us would have even one friend if we couldn't be forgiven or if we couldn't forgive? Friend, let me ask you, are you a gracious person? Are you a gracious friend? Do you parent with grace? Are you a gracious son or daughter? Are you a gracious boss or employee? Jesus died, and he rose again, not only to give us the gift of grace, but to extend his grace to others. And when we do, as Jesus' parable tells us, our life and our world will look a lot like the kingdom of heaven. As I close, I I want to address... Two groups of people first of all i want to address those who have never embraced and experienced the grace of god but you would like to receive god's grace today god's grace must be received you you can't earn it and you can't work for it all you can do is to receive it by faith and to receive it your hands must be open and empty. If your hands are full of other things like pride or self-righteousness or the pursuit of pleasure, power, position, then you aren't ready to receive the gift of God's grace. Your hands, as it were, need to be empty. And the, and the Christian term for that is repentance, sincere repentance, repentance, is a doorway to grace and also the doorway into the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is humbling yourself. It's acknowledging your sin, your need for God's grace and receiving it by faith. The way the woman caught in adultery did. You can do that right now simply by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and King asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to come into your life and committing to following him from this time forward. I encourage you just to bow your head right now and to do that in prayer to God. And then a word to those of you who have embraced God's grace. You know, I'm reminded of Bill Moyer's documentary, on the hymn Amazing Grace, which you can see on YouTube. There is a scene filmed in Wembley Stadium in London. Rock bands had gathered to celebrate positive changes in South Africa on apartheid, and the promoters scheduled an opera singer, Jesse Norman, to sing Amazing Grace as the closing act. The hymn, as some of you know, was written by John Newton, once a cruel slave trader whose life was transformed by the grace of Christ. And eventually he joined William Wilderforce in the fight against slavery. After committing his life to Jesus, John Newton never lost sight of the dark depths from which he had been saved. He never lost sight of grace when he wrote that saved a wretch like me. He meant those words with all of his heart. Finally, the time came for Jesse to sing. Now for 12 hours, rock groups had blasted the crowd through banks of speakers, riling up the fans already high on booze and dope. The crowd was restless. People were yelling for more rock music. The scene was getting ugly. With no backup band, no musical instruments, Jesse begins to sing to that huge crowd. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. A remarkable thing happened at Wembley Stadium that night. 70,000 fans fell silent as they contemplated grace. And by the time she reached the second verse, she had the crowd in her hands, and by the third verse, thousands of those fans were singing along. Jessie later confessed she had no idea what power descended on Wembley Stadium that night. Well, I think I know at least one reason, and that is because the world thirsts for grace as the people in that stadium contemplated god's grace and the meaning of those words, they grew silent in wonderment. You see because We are created in the image of God. I believe that deep down inside, every person longs for grace. And that includes those who have hurt us, those who have failed or disappointed us or have messed up our our lives. All those that we may think don't deserve God's grace. Jesus said, My upside-down kingdom will be defined by grace. And, folks, my challenge to all of us is that we would make him proud by extending grace, forgiveness freely to all who will receive it, to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love would you now join in with us? Would you respond to the message from God's word through the singing of Amazing Grace? And as we sing it, give God all the glory and the praise for what he has done.